The New Testament book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul from prison because of his ministries for Christ. This one short six-chapter book offers the believer rich and memorable Word of God for his or her identity, what it means to know Jesus, our goals for Christian character, behavior, joy in the Holy Spirit, Christian marriage and family, and how to fight your spiritual battles. The book of Ephesians is a book of power to transform our daily lives. Let me invite you to um, open your Bibles, your New Testaments, to the little book of Ephesians, chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction both to the series and to this book. I have enjoyed so much the time that we have spent together in the Gospel of John, going from the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead to the time that Jesus was actually taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of the chapters of teaching that he offered to us that very night, and then was crucified, and then was resurrected. That journey for me has been a meaningful one this Easter season to walk with one of the apostles who was actually there, who let us know how things broke down, how they happened, how the dominoes fell, one hitting the other, and all of the teaching that Jesus offered his disciples, which John records more of than anyone else. Before we took that journey with Jesus, we had started, what would I call it, an approach to the New Testament, where as a very young church, we wanted to ask the question, what was the church meant to be? What was it that Jesus wanted his church to be? What was it that the apostles wanted the church to be? Now, the reason we have to ask that question is that we are now 2,000 years removed from the founding of that church. Within three or 400 years, virtually every primitive version of that church, every original version of that church, had been conquered by the increasing size of the organizing church at that time. The last of the original primitive churches probably disappeared in the British Isles in about the 500s. During the next 500 years in the West, we refer to that as the Dark Ages, where education, organization, government, all those things took a huge backward step. My understanding is that people even learned how, even forgot how to make wheels during that time. They lost the knowledge of the plow. They lost the knowledge of the stirrup. All of these things got lost during the Dark Ages. And at that time, the only people in Western Europe, the Western part of the world that so many of us have inherited our lives from now, the only ones who were left who could read and write were monks and teachers in, in dusty little rooms. And a time came when the Bibles themselves ended up being chained to the pulpits. There was a period of time where people could actually be burned as a witch for reading the Bible on their own and teaching it on their own. And so during that period of time, we ended up with a transformation of the church, where instead of the church being what it originally was, the leadership of the church became all important. They became the people who baptized. They became the only people who preached. They became the only people who would come at times of death or weddings. Suddenly, a church where every single member was a priest, that's what we find in the New Testament, had become a church where only one man standing up front is recognized as a priest. 
There were transformations in all kinds of teaching, the nature of baptism, what baptism is for, what is the theology under baptism. And of course, the whole idea that we're going to have a relationship with God that we haven't read about and learned about ourselves. And we are the inheritors of that history. And so here we are in the year that we live in, coming back to the question and saying, how do I skip over 2,000 years of church history? Church history, a lot of which is filled with terrible things, terrible things that neither Jesus nor the apostles would have ever wanted connected to God's people. How do we become in this century the church that Jesus founded in the beginning and that his apostles taught? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to leap over that 2,000-year period and go back to the original text of the Scriptures and say, what was it you said? What did you want from us? What did you want this community to look like? And so we have begun reading the letters of the apostles during the course that uh, God's Word Community Church has been around, uh, still less than a year. We have taught and read through the book of 1 John. We have taught and read through the book of Galatians. Unfortunately, we hadn't begun recording these, so those messages are not available. But then, beginning with the books of First and Second Thessalonians, we began to be able to record our services. And so we studied those books. We studied preparation for Christmas. We took the break for Easter. And now we're coming back to our original road. How do we go back to these letters in the New Testament written by the apostles and find out what God wanted the church to be? And so we come to the beautiful, beautiful letter of Ephesians. This book, very understandably so, is a favorite of many Christians who have been reading their Bibles. The book is beautifully written. We find Paul in some of his most literary character where he writes this book, but it also deals with such important issues. There's so many major spiritual issues that are dealt with in this short six-chapter book. Paul talks about our future in Christ. He talks about how if we get our understanding of the church right, the gospel actually removes the walls that humans tend to set up between one another. Race disappears. Nationality disappears. All sorts of prejudices, stereotypes, and, and hatreds can disappear in the light of the work of Jesus Christ if we're doing church right. The book of Ephesians talks about church leadership. This book has in it one of the most important passages about discipling and equipping, a passage that I really believe modern churches need to repent and read and come back to and understand what their work should be. It has one of the most famous, if not the most infamous, passages on marriage in all the New Testament. And understanding the teaching about marriage in the book of Ephesians is extremely important, but it's also challenging in the day that we live in because it's been so greatly misunderstood. This book also talks about spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that you and I are in every day as the forces of darkness try to pull our hearts and minds out of the kingdom of God and try to turn us from the inside out. Who was it written to? Well, that's kind of an interesting story. The city of Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. So it's a great city, a large city, a wealthy city. But it is a city that was going through dynamic change. Ephesus was originally a trade city. It had a beautiful harbor and ships coming along the area that the Romans called Asia Minor. You and I would think of it as the western end of Turkey. Ships coming along there would dock in that harbor and could unload their goods 
in Ephesus, and those goods could be distributed all through that part of Asia Minor. But the funny thing is, because of soil erosion and things like that, that coastline was moving. The coastline moved and moved and moved. And eventually, the coastline was so far from Ephesus, it didn't make sense to use it as a harbor anymore. But there was one other thing in Ephesus which made this city extremely important still, and that was it housed what was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. In the city of Ephesus was worshipped the goddess Artemis. That was her name in Greek. Among the Romans, she was called Diana, and she is a very complicated and in some ways difficult goddess. You will find Artemis behind some very extreme varieties of feminism, the kinds of feminism that even try to encourage women not to be involved in families, making families, having families, really extreme versions of feminism. um, Artemis was also a sexual goddess. She also had a dark side that related to the practice of magic. Ephesus was a location where there was a great deal of magic and sorcery taught in the ancient world. You see, Artemis was considered to be the twin sister of the god Apollo. Apollo was the god of the sun. Artemis, or Diana, much more favored the moon And she had a dark incarnation called Hecate, who was completely involved in darker aspects of magic. And so the selling of spells, potions, formulas, that sort of thing was a big business in Ephesus. They sold little silver statues. And the temple of Artemis itself was, as I've said, one of the wonders of the ancient world. I have a quote here from an ancient writer named Antipater of Sidon. And Antipater had made it his job to visit every single one of the wonders of the ancient world. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, the giant Colossus, which used to stand outside the island of Rhodes. He writes this, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots. Antipater says that the wall of Babylon was so wide, you could ride two chariots in separate lanes on the top of that wall. It's a huge wall. The statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the Colossus of the Sun, the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted up to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, behold, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked down on anything so grand. The statue of Artemis and the temple there must have been absolutely amazing and breathtaking. It would have seemed like proof that certainly this Artemis, the goddess, existed. And the temple there was so wealthy that the temple of Artemis actually functioned as a bank that was powerful enough to loan kings money. So when Paul came there with the gospel, there was quite a contest between the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to that one Father except by Him. There is quite a contest between that monotheism and the business of Ephesus, which was idolatry. I believe this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. There's been a lot of arguing about that among the academics. We don't have time to go into all that. I will tell you, although this is too superficial a thing to say, that in my opinion, the arguments that have been raised against Paul when you do the study don't make much sense to me. 
I believe Paul was the writer of this book. One of the other interesting features of this book is that some of the earliest and best manuscripts don't actually have the words in Ephesus in the title. And one of the things that scholars have concluded, and this does make sense to me, is that this letter may have actually been a circular letter, meaning that it was meant for all the churches that were in Asia, and one church would read it and then make sure it was passed on to the next and to the next. If you've ever read the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, such as chapters 2 and 3, you'll find out there are at least seven major church cities in the western end of Asia Minor. It is possible that this letter that we're looking at was written really to all seven of them. One of the reasons we wonder that is that one of the guys that didn't like Paul very much actually wrote that he had written a letter to the church at Laodicea. That church is mentioned in the book of Revelation. We don't have that letter. We don't have a letter called the church, the letter written to the church of the saints in Laodicea. We don't have that letter. It is possible that this is it, that at some point it was written in Ephesus and then written to Laodicea, and then to somewhere else. One of the reasons this makes sense is you won't find Paul greeting any individuals in this letter. And so that's an unusual thing for him. Normally he greets his individuals. But as we get into the text itself, let me give you one final kind of warning as we get started. This first chapter has the most concentrated language in all the New Testament on the subject of predestination. And because of that, Ephesians chapter 1 has been an absolute battleground on the doctrine of predestination. And the challenge in predestination is, did God, before you were even born, decide that you were going to be a Christian, you were going to be saved, and you were going to go to heaven? Or, Do you have free will when you make those choices? That has been the battleground. That has been the argument. John Calvin, who started a strong line of predestinarian teaching in the history of the church, has actually been quoted as saying, there will be babies in hell, not a span long. A span is the width of your hand. John Calvin's idea was that God selects some to be saved and you have no choice and some to go to hell and you have no choice. And even babies who die unborn, really, if they've been predetermined to go to hell, that's where they'll go. And so you see, that's how strong the differences are between predestination, making a choice and predestination, no choice at all. Let me tell you what the secret is. And it actually shouldn't be a very difficult secret because Paul tries to make it abundantly clear in this first chapter. Predestination, if you watch, if you listen, as you read, you will see that the predestination that we have happens in Christ. The predestination exists in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus, that expression occurs 30 times in six chapters. That expression being in Jesus really is the foundation of this letter. You can imagine if we use the language like this for predestination, the predestination is that God has said this train is headed to this place. Now, do you want to get on the train or do you not want to get on the train? You are either in the train or you are not in the train. If you are in the train, the journey that you're getting ready to take is a predestined one. It goes to blessing. It goes to adoption. It goes to your inheritance. It goes to the praise of God. If you're not on the train, then you don't get to go to all those places. You will find that in the first 18 verses of the book of Ephesians, he will use the expression in him, in Jesus, or in Christ, he will use it 14 times in 18 verses. You would think that people would have noticed it. 
But somehow these scholars have done all this arguing and wrangling without understanding that the predestination happened in Christ. And Paul couldn't have worked harder to make sure it was seen. Now, the opening verses that we see here are very typical for the Apostle Paul. I hope this long introduction has been helpful to set the stage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. You can maybe imagine how Paul felt about that. He was not like Peter, James, John, Matthew. He was not one of those who walked with Jesus. He was, in fact, one who came up among the Pharisees and tried to destroy the church, tried to destroy the teaching of Jesus Christ. And God appeared to him in light and thunder so powerful it knocked him right off his mule. And God gave him grace and showed him all the work that he had for him to do. And Paul described himself as being an apostle who was abnormally born. He did not come into being an apostle the same way all the rest did. He was an apostle by God's will. God selected him out. He went through a special series of circumstances to get Paul started. And the amazing thing is, Paul probably did more church planting, more work to bring people to the gospel than all the other apostles put together. To the saints, the holy ones, saint, sanctify, holy, all those words are the same thing. It refers to something that belongs to God. That's the easiest way to understand it. Something that is holy is something that belongs to God. To the saints, God's people who are in Ephesus and are the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. Let me pause just a moment to remind you that what this word faithful or believing means is that these are people who have put their trust and their dependence in Jesus Christ. And the reason I emphasize this, you've heard me say it before, that in the United States especially, the word faith or believing has been cheapened so that it refers to just agreeing that a particular thing is true or agreeing that a certain thing exists. People treat faith in Jesus Christ as, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A lot of people believe that's going to get them saved. And the truth is that it won't. To agree that Jesus is the Son of God will get you as far as the demons have gone. That's what Jesus' half-brother James says in the second chapter of his letter. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the devils believe that, and they tremble. If your faith doesn't make you live any differently, if you don't look at situations any differently, if you don't make your choices differently, Jesus' half-brother James calls faith like that useless, helpless, worthless, demonic, and dead. He uses all that language. So when we're talking about biblical faith, we're talking about something that changes us. It changes what we see. We become the people who look for, this is going to make you sound crazy, we look for the invisible. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the essence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. Except we don't use the word hope like the world does. The world uses the word hope like, gee, I hope such and such a thing is true. I hope when I get to the store, they'll still have that object on the shelf. We don't know if the object will be on the shelf or not. In our language, hope can be a 50-50 flip of the coin. In the New Testament, hope is built on the Word of God. Hope is certain. Hope is firm. And because I can trust my God, I can take the options that He gives me that no one else wants because they're going on what is seen. To the faithful ones in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I could spend a whole sermon on each of those words, grace and peace. Grace means that God does not grade us with numbers. 
He does not respond to us as our actions deserve. Grace is a freely given gift that comes out of his generosity. It is something that we cannot earn. Peace is a bigger word in the Bible than it is in human life. In human life, we say that two nations are at peace when they quit shooting at each other. But Bible peace, shalom, goes much further than that. Shalom in the Bible is a kind of wellness, wholeness, a goodness, a blessedness that comes up in my relationship with God, in my relationship with my fellow human beings, and within my own self. Now, the thing you need to understand is that this is also a perfect greeting to an integrated church. The word grace is very much like the word that non-Jews used in the Roman Empire to say, howdy, good morning, or very close to, have a nice day. That's what it was very much like. The word for rejoice or greetings or have a nice day back then was the word kyra. The word grace is charis. comes from the same root. It's very, very close. That's how you would say hi to a non-Jew. To a Jew, you would say, Shalom. So when Paul writes, Grace and Peace, he's saying, Howdy, all you Jewish people, and Howdy, all you non-Jewish people. And they're in the same church, praise the Lord. From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he opens this chapter with a blessing. Now, I want to remind you that this is how Jews have been praying for a long, long time. Blessed are you, O God, our Father, King of the heavens. Blessed are you, God, who has given us bread. Blessed are you, O God, who has given us fruit of the vine. Baruch hatad nai eloheinu hamelech haolam. Blessed are you, our God, King of the heavens. So when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this prayer of blessing is a well-established tradition, but Jesus even makes this new. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Notice it's not who will bless us. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. If you stop and think about that for a second, you might say, but I'm not in the heavenly realms. You're saying that I've already received something and I'm not there yet. <laughs> C.S. Lewis described us as being amphibians, meaning that we live both in the physical world and in the spiritual world. Our lives are far more spiritual than we realize. Our lives are far more crossing over into the spiritual world than we understand. Blessed be the God and Father who has already blessed us. Notice the expression, in Christ. That's the first time it appears. With every spiritual blessing. One of the things that Paul and the early church had to put up with all the time is people coming along saying, well, you're... You know, your, your Christian faith, I mean, that's kind of cute and basic, and I'm glad you've got that. But if you really want advanced spiritual understanding, you need this. And everybody had their own version of what advanced spiritual understanding was. There was a group called the Gnostics that started drifting into and then changing aspects of the gospel because they believed that there was certain spiritual rarefied knowledge that you could only get to with particular types of study or secret meetings or worship or so on. That's not part of Christianity. On day one, you get it all. You get the whole thing on day one, there are no hidden books. There are no secret rituals. There is no hidden knowledge. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. We have no secrets in the gospel. God has blessed us in Christ. There's nothing missing in Jesus. And I want you to see that. Spiritually speaking, 
you can find in Jesus every spiritual thing you need. In fact, you will find in Jesus every spiritual thing that is good. In the heavenly places, we are already blessed. We are already blessed in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons we don't realize this is because we have such a hard time keeping our eyes from over-focusing on the present world. We are not as aware of our spiritual blessings as we could be. And one of the things I love about this chapter is that Paul does a great job of helping make us more aware of what the spiritual blessings are. Even as he chose us, now it's funny, this next verse, verse 4, most people read this, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's how most people would read this. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. People read this and say, oh, okay, before he even made the planet, he's already determined what kind of man I'm going to be spiritually. He's already dictating whether I'm going to be saved or unsaved. I want to say, wait a minute, you left two words out in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what was this choosing? If I get onto the train... If I am in him, where is this train supposed to take me? It is supposed to take me to where I will be holy. I will realize that I belong to him. When I talk to young adults about the proper use of their bodies, it's a, it's a thing that in our day is virtually unknown that we would look at our bodies and consider them holy. Young men can be different to teach this way because they let the girl draw the lines on the boundaries of the intimate relationship, right? And so sometimes the men have an easier time making the decision that the woman's body is holy than recognizing that their own bodies are holy, that their own bodies are supposed to belong to God, that their own bodies are vessels of praise to him. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. What's interesting to me about the word blameless here is that it's the same word that's used for the lambs that are chosen to use for the Passover. That you only use lambs that are unmarked, unblemished, no deformity. And so when we look at our characters, God's desire is that we would become blameless. And so you notice how if you're paying attention to the Lord, if you're praying with him, if you're reading the word, God always seems to want to take you to the next step, doesn't he? Okay, we've started to clean this part up, but I'd really like you to start working on cleaning this up too. Well, Lord, I don't have the temper fits quite like I used to. Yeah, but I want to get your language in line too. Really? You want me to clean up my language? Yeah, and let's talk about the, the kind of speeding you do when you drive. Well, what about how I fill out my taxes? What? Well, no, I, I quit throwing temper tantrums. You know, I'm kind of satisfied with my character. And the Lord is saying to us, have you considered the word blameless? <laughs> let's keep, in, keep moving us on to a better character. Before him... In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, this word sons here and adoption as sons, these words are very important in the ancient world because they identified someone who would receive inheritance in the family. Augustus Caesar was Julius Caesar's nephew. Julius Caesar adopted Augustus as his son so that when Julius died, all of the rights of leadership in Rome would now come to Augustus. That's the kind of word this is. You and I weren't from this family. You and I weren't born part of God's family. In fact, we had already sold ourselves to lesser and baser things. Through Jesus Christ, it says. Did you notice that word? 
5, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. When you come into Christ, you become, you ready for this? An inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. An adopted son whose name is written in the will. (laughs) I don't know what that's like on an earthly level. Both my parents are gone. What I got left when my parents left would have fit in a suitcase. I don't care how poor your family is, how poor your parents are. When you are in Jesus Christ, you become an inheritor in the kingdom of heaven. The name of your family is now God and Sons, Inc. This is good stuff. According to the purpose of his will, this is the way he wanted it. He did not have an only begotten son because Jesus was the only one he wanted to love. He had an only begotten son so he could adopt all of us to the praise of his glorious grace. Why is that? Because grace is the only way I'm getting in. Grace is the only way any of us are getting in. With which he has blessed us In the beloved. There it is again. Here Jesus is called the beloved. Isn't that sweet? He has blessed us in the beloved. In him. (laughs) There it is again. We have redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? To redeem something means you buy it back. Why should I have to pay the price for it again? I don't know. Things happen in different ways. Sometimes something that belonged to us in the past doesn't belong to us, and we have to go back and buy it again. When I was a little kid, shortly after the cooling of the earth, there was actually a thing that was done in the grocery stores that they called redeeming stamps. And the way redeeming stamps worked, well, it's like this. Mom went to the grocery store. She bought a certain amount of groceries. And in addition to the receipt, the person at the register would give her a bunch of stamps. Green stamps, gold stamps. And you would take those stamps and you'd wet them and you'd put them in books. And when you filled up your book with stamps, you could give those stamps back to the store and maybe get yourself a toaster. Or if you had enough stamp books, maybe a bicycle. But that took a lot of stamp books. Jesus bought us back. And why do we say back? Because he made us. We belong to him in the beginning. He is the creator God. He fashioned us. He formed us. And then we went and sold ourselves into slavery. Because we're clever like that. And Jesus sees all of the children that he made sold out into slavery, and he is willing to be tortured and killed on the cross to pay the price to get us back out of what we've done to ourselves. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's what it cost. He was the only one capable of doing it. He was the only one who was holy. He was the only one who didn't have sins of his own. Through his blood, and then Paul specifically defines it as the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of all the lines that we have crossed. All the places where God said, do not go, and we went there anyway. And all the places where God said, I really want you to do this. And we were like, yeah, whatever. And we didn't. All of those places where we sold ourselves out of his will and out of his good favor, Jesus bought us back, paid the price for all those trespasses. According to our goodness, according to how warm and fuzzy we were, no. According to the riches of his grace, because our God's grace is that big, because our God's grace is is that sacrificing and loving, which he lavished on us. I love that word, lavished. God did not give us his grace 
stingily. He did not measure it out like it was from a medicine dropper. God has poured out His grace on us as if it's one dump truck after another, after another, after another, pouring His grace upon us. You see why I say when we read the beginning, He has already blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Why don't we feel that way? Because we're not paying attention. Because we're not praying. Because we're not reading our Bible. Because we don't know Jesus as intimately as we should. And Paul will address this before we're done. He lavished on us grace. We are sitting in the midst of a lavish gift of grace, which he gave to us in all wisdom and all insight. God knew this is what it was going to take to heal and grow us. Making known to us, verse 9, is where we run into the, we run into the word mystery for the first time in the book of Ephesians. And I love the word mystery because in this book, it refers that something that used to be a secret, even the angels didn't know it. It used to be a secret part of God's plan, but now it's been revealed to us. Now it's been explained. Now it's been made manifest. And Jesus is the manifestation of that mystery. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth where? In Christ. He set the mystery of his will out in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Something that was going to work out over time. And when that time is full, when time has reached its fullness, God's plan is to unite everything in him. Everything in heaven, everything in earth. There is no part of the earth, there are no people, there are no races that are not ultimately going to be under the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. And there will be those who rejoice when they bow in front of him, and there are going to be those who weep when they bow in front of him because they stack their cards in a different direction from his. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, Philippians chapter 2. As I live, says the Lord, every tongue, every tongue, every tongue will give praise to God. Every tongue will give praise to God. In Him, are we getting it yet? (laughs) In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we're on the train. We are in his will. We are in Christ. We are in him. And we are headed toward that inheritance. Praise the Lord. Of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, when you read your Bible, when you see the word that or so that or in order that, When you see those expressions in your Bible reading, they're really, really cool little words because it means that the next thing you're going to get to read is why. We always want to know why, right? That, so that, in order that, always lead to an expression of purpose. And we're getting ready to hear the purpose. Why is God doing this? So that we who were the first to hope, where? In Christ might be for the praise of his glory. I love the praise songs in the book of Revelation. They make me happy. (laughs) I like Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 19. I love those praise songs. And we are on the train in Christ, headed into our inheritance, which is going to be for the praise of his glory, and there's going to be a praise party, and we're going to get to be there because in him we were adopted as sons. And we are going to be there to sing his praises. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Because we're already on the train. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In him. Are you seeing it? In him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed. Wow. 
I don't know how somebody could read this verse and think that God gave us no choice. I don't understand that. I'll be perfectly honest. So that, that's the purpose. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory in him you also win. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Well, you either responded to it or you didn't. You either wanted it or you didn't. The predestination wasn't something that happened to me before I made the decision to respond to that gospel. That's what he says here. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that doesn't mean I just agreed that it was true. If that's as far as it went, I'd be like the devils in James chapter 2. It's when I decided to put my trust and dependence in him. I know that there's no way for me to be saved except by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have no way to become a better human being than I naturally would be except by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. I have no knowledge of how to pursue God or understanding or wisdom of how to be close to him except by the word of God which he spoke to me because he knew I was too small and dumb to figure it out. His words are not like my words. His thoughts are not like my thoughts. And that's why we call this God's Word Community Church, because this is essential to us. And when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him, we were sealed. Now, there are going to be two images, two metaphors that Paul is going to use right, one right after the other. We're sealed. Now, you all have seen the thing, haven't you, where somebody usually times before ours, whether it's 1700s or back in the Roman days, you have this idea of someone writing a letter, they pour the wax on the letter, and they take the seal and they stamp it, and it guarantees that that letter is from their own hand. (laughs) You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? That's your inheritance. That's your guarantee. That experience of the Holy Spirit that you have, I know some days are better than others, usually depending on whether we've done a good job filling up or not. But that that presence of God in your life is the seal of the life to come. And to make it even more explicit, he says, who is the guarantee? Now this word here, guarantee, if we were to translate it 100% literally, we would translate it with an expression like earnest money. You know what earnest money is? I bought a little townhome in Elverton. It cost me a lot more than $1,000 here in the state of Maryland. But to seal the deal, according to the traditions of banking and real estate that go all the way back to the time of writing of this letter, I had to write the first check for $1,000, which was a token of the amount that the property cost, but it was the thing that sealed the contract that I was buying the house. That $1,000 is called the earnest money. Now get this. The Holy Spirit that God has given to you, we don't know what heaven is like. We don't fully know ourselves. We don't know what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face. In the book of 1 John, the apostle writes, when we see him, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. I don't even know what that means. But I know that for me to actually lay my eyes on the face of Christ is going to have a transforming effect on me. That's not where I am yet. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, right now, we're looking as if through a glass darkly. We're having a little trouble making it all out. We can't see clearly. Some things are kind of distorted in our eyes. We can't make it out. But even though we've only received a portion of it, the portion that we have written, that that we have received, is the earnest money. It is the guarantee on our inheritance. It is God saying, I sent my son to you because I wanted to be with you forever, forever, face to face, with nothing in the way. 
And I'm going to give you my spiritual presence in the Holy Spirit as the deposit on that, as the guarantee of it, to let you know that I'm serious about this and that the rest of the deal is coming through. You have the earnest of your salvation in Jesus Christ. You were sealed. You were given the earnest money of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And there I am back in Revelation 4, 5, and 19 again. For this reason. You know, this whole time, up until verse 14, Paul has just been talking about how wonderful it is to be in Jesus Christ. He hasn't said anything to the Ephesians about themselves yet. 14 verses. Must be a preacher. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith. That's a description of what a church is supposed to be like in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church where people knew of your church because of your church's reputation for really depending on Jesus Christ and for the way people in the church love each other? That's a description right there of what a good church is supposed to be. What we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to have a rep for faith. We're supposed to have a rep for loving each other and taking care of each other. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Now, I want to remind you that the guy who's writing this is currently in prison. And I was sharing with our sister earlier today how interesting the prayer is that we're going to read about. Because the churches I grew up in, if we were being written by a preacher who was in prison, he's going to be writing, you know, I only get food if somebody remembers to bring it. So please pray that there will always be somebody to bring me some food. And, you know, these shackles have worn these blisters, and I think one of them's infected. Pray that I don't get sick from being here. And, and pray that I don't get tortured and killed because I've seen that happen to some people here. Paul doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't say, I'm praying that you'll be spared persecution living in the city of that goddess. He doesn't pray for that. I, I had a professor once who talked about modern church prayers. He calls them the roll call of the sick. Because when churches get together, we pray for Aunt Sally's foot, we pray for this, we pray for that. We pray for all these things which are our troubles in this world. And you know what? We're all going to die. There's going to be a time for all of us when the prayer to God that we would be healed is not going to be answered yes. All of us are going to come to that time when that prayer is going to be answered no. And I want you to notice that even under these terrible circumstances, Paul's prayer here is not a roll call of the sick. It is a prayer for something spiritual in the lives of his brothers and sisters. And guess what? You and I need it too. You're going to see that. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering in your prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now Paul starts to stack up his words here. This last part is thick, some of Paul's thick writing. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I love that expression, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Paul is asking that God will give us the kind of wisdom that only comes from the Word of God. And you know what the word revelation is? It's the word apocalypse. Apocalypse. It's the name of the book of Revelation. You see Revelation in English, you turn into Greek and look at the title in Greek, it's apocalypsis. It's apocalypse. All of us walking dead fans and zombie movie fans... We talk about apocalypse all the time now. We're just trying to figure out which flavor we're going to get. Is it going to be zombies? Is it going to be genetic? Is it going to be a bomb? Is it going to be the collapse of the, of the financial systems all over the planet at the same time? And what we forget is that the original meaning 
of apocalypse is when something that was completely hidden is now completely revealed. Can you imagine the kind of prayer that Paul is praying for you if he is asking for you to have an apocalypse of the soul? That you would have a revelation, a transformation that was so dramatic that an apocalypse is the only way to describe it. That you would have wisdom and an apocalypse in the knowledge of him. I want you to know Jesus better than you do. I want you to have an apocalypse of knowing Jesus. So that when on that day that that apocalypse hits you, after that, your knowing Jesus is different from any knowing of Jesus you had before. This is a big hairy deal we're talking about. When Jesus in Luke 13 turns away people at the door, he says, go away from me, I never knew you. The knowing of Jesus Christ is the core of salvation. In fact, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's Jesus' own words. That's what eternal life is, to know God, to know Jesus Christ. And Paul, in prison, uncertain about his future, is writing to people in persecution. And what is he praying about? I want the apocalypse in your heart to happen where you know Jesus in a way that you haven't known him before. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Isn't that a beautiful expression? The eyes of your heart Do you know what it feels like when the eyes of your heart feel dark? I do. I wrestle against my own darkness frequently. I pray that the eyes of your heart, that you'd be able to see with your heart, that there would be some light shining on the eyes of your heart. To what end? That. Didn't I tell you it was a purpose for it? Here we go. Here comes the purpose. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You don't fully understand this promise he's made to you. You don't fully understand this salvation that he's given you. You don't understand the inheritance, the heaven, the sonship that he has given you. I pray that the eyes of your heart would have some light so that you will know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Wow. Man, we spend a lot of our days just common, don't we? Anxious, brooding, depressed. We need an apocalypse. We need to chase him until we can see him. And what is Paul in verse 19? I imagine Paul grabbing a Greek thesaurus and looking for every single word he can find for the word power because he squeezes them all into verse 19. There are six different words he throws in this verse to explain how big God's power is, which he exercised in Jesus Christ and raising him from the dead, and he wants to exercise in us. Verse 19 cracks me up. I never saw anybody write like this except for Paul. And what is the immeasurable? The word is hyperthrown, overthrown, thrown so far you can't see where the ball goes. The hooperbalo, ball is the word in Greek for to throw something. That makes sense, doesn't it? What do you throw? You throw a ball. Balo is I throw. This is hyperthrown. This is like what happens when Superman kicks the ball. Off in the sky, you can't see it anymore. The overthrown majesty, greatness, impact of his power, dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite, dunamis, his power toward us who believe according to the working in our gaia, where we get the word energy, 
his constant working, the energy that he puts into it, the energia of his great might. Now, that's how my Bible translates the expression, the strength of his might. <laughs> In one sentence, hyperthrone, majesty, power, strength, might, energy. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and it doesn't stop there, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Oh, wait a minute. I just had a revelation. See that expression in the heavenly places? Where did it say in the beginning that God had blessed us with every spiritual blessing? In the heavenly blesses. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And look, that's where he's sitting. At God's right hand. Far above. How big are your problems? Where are your problems coming from? Far above all rule. Paul pulls out his thesaurus again. That first word, every leading thing. And then every authority. And then every power. And then every lordship. And above every name that can be named. That's where my Lord Jesus is. If there's a structure, if there's a hierarchy, if there's a power, if there's an authority, he's over it. You know, we don't even have to argue about whether there are any other gods that exist, demons that exist, angels that exist. We don't even have to argue about it. Whatever there is, it's under Jesus Christ. Visible or invisible, in heaven or on earth. Spiritual or physical. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above all names, not only in this age, but in the one to come. <laughs> and get this, church. And I really hope that there are other churches listening because this fact cannot be forgotten and stay the church. He put, God put, all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. God let it be that the one group of people that would remember that Jesus is their head is the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. What happens when a body quits taking instructions from its head? What happens? It depends on how severe the shortage of communication is, doesn't it? The body quits being able to feel. The body starts moving in spastic ways. The organs quit performing as well, and toxins start building up in the blood. Have you ever experienced a toxic church? Wonder if it forgot that Jesus was the head. Have you ever seen somebody struggle with the pain and difficulty of cerebral palsy? A body where the muscles just can't get the right instructions to and from the brain. And then, yes, as you said... Eventually, when that body quits receiving instructions from that totally, it dies. Stone cold, hammer, spiritual, dead. Jesus warns the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you need to get your act together or I will take your lampstand out of its place. Your star will be removed. You will find me standing on the outside of the church, knocking on the door, trying to get in and figuring out why you left me on the porch. Isn't it awful that people do church and they don't need Jesus to do it? But that's what we've seen. 
And that's why we need the word of God. That's why we need obedience to the commandments of Jesus to be a subject of repentance for churches all over this country because they've forgotten who they have to please. Churches all over the place are trying to create programs designed for people who don't go to church that will please the people that don't go to church. Or you have churches in slavery trying to please crotchety old Christians that have been there 40 years and they're trying to please them. And those churches live every week in fear. How do we do something meaningful in this world without offending so-and-so? Who is the person we're supposed to be pleasing? Who is the person we're supposed to be receiving commands from? This is Jesus' church. He is the boss. He is the head. It is his commandments that count. Wow. The name above all names. Big question. Why is it that so often we can't tell in a church that it is even listening to Jesus? Depending on the word of God, living by faith, which can be seen, showing devoted love to other Christians that creates a reputation. Is it possible that the church does not know or forgets that Jesus is now the great authority over all creation? Is it possible that the church does not know that Jesus is to be her own leader, commander, or even her head? What happens to a body when it doesn't obey its head? It gets contorted. It moves spastically. It dies. Jesus is everything to us. I want to be the kind of church where if God doesn't move, we're incapable of doing anything. That's what being his church means. We should live with faith and love that are obvious to observers. And the eyes of our hearts need to be opened to what he has done for us and what he is giving us in this life and in the one to come. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, sometimes your word speaks and the longing of our hearts is just, Father, make it so. Make it so. Let it be true in my life. Let it be true in my life behind closed doors. Let it be true in our church. Let it be in our words when we're at work, when we run into our colleagues and our friends. Father, bring us to an apocalypse of our minds and our spirits that the eyes of our heart will be opened to you to know the hope to which you have called us so that we'll quit judging things by the darkness of this world. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. And we praise you as the name above all names. It's in your name we pray. Amen.